0: Welcome to the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Mark Calabria. I'm our Director of Financial Regulation Studies here at the Cato Institute. Uh, It is uh, my strong belief that in order for us to craft the appropriate policies to avoid future financial crises, we need to take a couple of minutes and ask ourselves, how do we get into this mess to begin with, and try to craft those policies accordingly. Uh, I think there are a variety of causes and forces, such as monetary policy, in my opinion, that are pretty well understood, even if they continue to be ignored on Capitol Hill. Uh, our purpose today is to focus on another one of those causes, one which I believe there is significant disagreement and significant debate, and that is the role of consumer protection laws as they apply to the financial services industry. Uh, central to this issue of whether consumer protection or lack thereof contributed to the crisis uh, is really, in my opinion, the driving difference between different narratives of the crisis. Uh, and essentially, the question in my mind is, was credit too cheap or was credit too expensive? Uh, and how one answers that question, I believe, leads to a variety of different policy proposals. So our attempt today is to start a debate and start a dialogue and a discussion among, uh, I think, what we have a wide range of opinions on the panel, uh, and we hope to have some very fruitful discussion uh, and hope to all, uh, at least on my part, leave a little less ignorant than we started out today. Uh, our first speaker will be Janice Bowler. Janice is the Deputy Director of the Wealth Building Project at the National Council of La Raza. If you've not heard of La Raza, uh, then you must not have been paying attention. They are a very big voice here in Washington, and they are the largest Latino civil rights uh, and advocacy organization. During my seven years working on the Banking Committee, it was always a pleasure. Uh, Being lobbied by uh, Janice, if I can call it lobbying, Uh, even when I disagreed with her, which sometimes was quite often, uh, I always felt like I learned a whole lot in the conversation uh, and that uh, I was also a little less ignorant after hearing from her. Our second speaker is Todd Zuwicki. Todd is the Foundation Professor of Law at George Mason University. Uh, in addition to his academic work on consumer finance, Todd was also the Director of the Office of Policy and Planning at the Federal Trade Commission, uh, which is the primary federal regulator for consumer issues, both finance and otherwise. To say that Todd has written and published extensively would be an understatement. Uh, I find that it's probably half of my job just trying to read Todd's work. It keeps me quite busy. Uh, I'm quite jealous. I do not know how he manages to put out the number of words he does on a regular basis. Um, our third speaker is Ed Mirazinski. Ed is the director of cons- the Consumer Program at the National Association of State Public Interest Research Groups, better known as PERG. Previous to his over 20 years at PERG, Ed spent almost a decade running Connecticut PERG. Um, and one little uh, side story is while he was on the staff, I believe it was probably his first year at PERG, uh, I had the opportunity to spend a summer canvassing for PERG during my college time. Uh, while it's a story for another day, I would say that that <laughs> summer canvassing at PERG set me directly on the path to Cato. <laughs> Uh, Our final speaker is Tom Durkin. At the center of consumer finance law really is the Truth in Lending Act. There are a lot of other laws in consumer finance, but the Truth in Lending Act is the core of it. At the center of its implementation and analysis by the Federal Reserve has really been Tom. He has been, during his two decades at the Fed, the primary economic analyst on consumer finance issues. Uh, prior to his service at the Fed, uh, Tom taught finance at Penn State, uh, and he is also currently finishing up a book on the history and impact of the Truth in Lending Act, so I really look forward to reading that. Uh, with that, I welcome our audience, and I welcome all of our speakers, and I'm going to turn the podium over to Janice.
1: Thank you very much. Um, so I'm so pleased to be here. Uh, thank you for the introduction. National Council of La Raza is the largest Hispanic civil rights organization, and the project that I oversee looks specifically at how we can help low-income Latino families build wealth and assets uh, through the financial markets, primarily through homeownership, but we also deal a lot with uh, banking products, credit products, credit cards, and the like. So I'm told that I'm first because my, uh, my last name is Bowdler, but I like to think that I'm first because Cato wanted to put forth the civil rights perspective first so that you would have that as you're listening to everything else that is being discussed. Well,
0: Cato is certainly one of the foremost organizations in civil liberty, so we do appreciate that right. shared commitment.
1: Thank you. Thank you. So um, obviously we've got, we've got a great panel here lined up, and the, the question Um, that's been put before us, um, did lack of consumer protections cause the financial crisis, is a hefty one. And I'm not going to try to pretend like I am going to break down for you all of the root causes of the financial crisis. Um, People much smarter than myself, in fact, an entire commission has been appointed to take a look at this. And if you look at that list of people on the commission, you'll notice that I'm not one of them. Uh, So... What I want to talk about is a little bit about some of the things that I think did contribute to the financial crisis, and then I want to take you down very low to the ground of what was happening in individual communities. My my friends that are macroeconomists often accuse me of ignoring the larger mechanics of a global economy, and then I in turn point out that they often miss the nuances of what happens in individual communities when financial products are actually sold on the ground. So a couple of points just to start off the conversation. One is, uh, from our perspective, the entire system lacked accountability, from, from soup to nuts, all the way from origination to selling a mortgage finance product on the secondary market. There are were a number of places where decisions could have been made differently, and they were not. And the incentives were aligned in such a way to ensure a short-term perspective over a long term perspective. Um, We can can have a conversation about the roles and responsibilities of each one of those players from the consumer to the secondary market. But one thing that we believe from our perspective is that every single one of those players that there was accountability that, that broke down. I will say though that We don't think that you can only blame consumers. And as Mark was talking about popular narratives uh, that have been driving the debate, this has been one of the most popular, that consumers or somehow an overzealous drive to homeownership for low-income families drove the crisis. We don't believe that. And one of the key reasons why I think that's not true is because I don't believe that squirrely consumers in their own right – caused the bubble or could bring down the collapse of the entire system. Did you have some consumers that made some poor decisions? Sure. Did you have investors that helped drive up the bubble? Absolutely. But they were not the only players in the game, and they are not the only ones that were responsible. The other reason why I think it's problematic is because we've seen areas where the market worked for these families very well. And you did have low-income consumers who got uh, prime mortgage products and, therefore, were less likely to foreclose. But this was not the the dominant process uh, in the bubble years. So we also know that home ownership for low-income families is possible and, when done right, is very sustainable. The... The narrative on um, on home ownership for low income families though is is important for other reasons and that 's because it wasn 't just a narrative on um, home ownership for low income families or for communities of color. It, there was a narrative driven by the, our regulators by alan Greenspan, Greenspan and by Ben Bernanke that homeowners, that home values would continue to go up, and that consumers should take advantage of their home equity. And so a number of times you would hear this over and over from people in positions of power, whether they were our regulators, whether it was policymakers, or whether it was journalists putting out this message that... People should own homes. The value will continue to go up. This is a solid investment. And so people believe that. I believe the phrase um, that's out there, Schiller did this phrase, social contagion. So that you, um, you start to get a group think and a group belief that home ownership is good. And then, where I think the the problematic uh, corollary to that is that there there was there was no downfalls or that there was that it was easy and it was for anybody at any time we think it 's for everybody, but we we think not enough people were asking when for for these families um, so knowing that um, that this was the dominant narrative, from our perspective, what, what did pave uh, what that did pave the way for, in our perspective, is some very loose oversight and loose regulatory reform, and couple that with a belief that financial institutions were going to be able to regulate themselves, that financial institutions were going to do what was good for the economy, when in fact that's not what they were going to do and not what they've ever done. What they did was what was good for short-term profits. And the problem with that is that what was good for short-term profits was also deemed to be what was good for safety and soundness. So this became self-fulfilling. And what we lost were both the long-term sustainability perspective and... What happens to the little guy? And, of course, that's where I spend most of my time is thinking about what happens to individual families when they go into the market and they try to purchase their first home. So with that um, background on the narrative and kind of giving you some sense of how I approach the issues, I want to talk quickly about uh, three things that were happening in the market um, during the bubble years that were specifically problematic for Latino families, low-income families, but I think all home buyers uh, in general. Um, the first is that we had a huge problem at origination. Uh, There's was, there was a lot of talk about predatory lending, and I myself have authored a couple of papers at NCLR about exactly what predatory lending looked like in the Latino community. I think what we lose when we talk too much about predatory lending is we let all of the prime lenders off the hook. And actually, what was happening in the markets is that prime lenders had really withdrawn from this space in a big way, leaving a huge vacuum, which subprime lenders were quick to fill. Now, I don't have a problem with subprime lending. I think that it can, in fact, open a lot of doors. And for a community that is still struggling to gain access to financial products, by themselves, these are not bad things. Uh, where we saw the problem come into play in two ways. One is that families that should have gotten prime credit were steered into subprime credit, and that some uh, subsets of subprime credit um, came with uh, not just high prices, but, um, but traps, built-in traps that, as the bubble was bursting, made it inevitable that these families would uh, default. They, the products themselves were built on belief that the bubble would continue to expand forever. Uh, and there was pretty much no way that uh, that your average first-time homebuyer was going to be able to detect that. Um, the statistics, I'm sure uh, many of you have seen them. Uh, for Communities of color were um, upwards of twice as likely to get a subprime mortgage. For Latinos, it was two and a half times more likely than their white peers, even when you controlled for a number of factors like Their credit, the presence of a co borrower, their down payment, their loan to value. Uh, The other problem and issue that came into play here is that um, brokers became a lifeline into the community and that was a mixed blessing. So on one hand again our community is struggling to get access. Many of our families would not have gotten a mortgage if it wasn't for a fact that there was a mortgage broker there serving that community. On the other hand mortgage brokers were predominantly pushing subprime products and there are reasons for that. I'm happy to talk about that in Q&A, we know a lot about how exactly this happened because we authored a report. I only have a couple left, but I've got a couple up here. Where we went to six different cities and we interviewed mortgage brokers working with predominantly Latino communities and we asked them what was going on in the ground and they told us. And one of the things that they would tell us is that they had a hard time getting access to standard Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, CRA prime products um plain vanilla became a dirty word in uh, the house debate but you know your sort of standard 30-year fixed rate products many of them had a hard time getting access to that so what you end up with is the the predominant players serving latino communities are pushing subprime products um there's also clear evidence of the community having been targeted. Again, I'll go back to um, to incentives and to the way in which um, the originators infiltrated the community and then specialized in certain products. Options were off the table for a lot of borrowers. They didn't really have choices when they went in. They had their choice of a variety of subprime products. But we also know that In some cases, if you were a Latino homebuyer, first-time homebuyer, with a unique profile that was considered hard to serve and maybe took more work, you were sent down the street to the subprime affiliate, uh, and they dealt with you there, and prime guys would actually uh, find ways to to turn you away and put you in that subprime affiliate. Uh, We have data to support that, and we also have a lot of anecdotal evidence um, and stories from the community about exactly how that would happen. And then the last point that I want to make, um, in terms of what was going on on the ground, is clear inaction. So um, I think others will probably talk about uh, major regulators. It's uh, everybody knows that the Fed had power to do something and did nothing, um, but. All the other checks and balances failed along the way as well. State regulatory bodies are underfunded and unmanned. Or not unmanned. Well, Freudian slip. Uh, <laughs> um, they have people, but they don't have nearly enough people to to get out there. Uh, DOJ wasn't doing very many of these cases. Um, the FBI white collar crime unit had resources had been diverted um, towards domestic terrorism, which. I think we all agree is a good cause as well. Um, But really what we had are all the checks and balances, again, throughout the system that were supposed to be in play were not. And so a number of breakdowns. So to come to full circle to the question, did lack of consumer protections cause the financial crisis? I am going to punt, and I'm going to tell you that I think you asked the wrong question. And what I think the question should be is, could better consumer protections have prevented the crisis? And my answer to that is yes, for two reasons. One is because I think we could have prevented a lot of abuse for individual families, and at the heart, our crisis is driven by the fact that individual homeowners cannot make their mortgage payments. And it really does come down to what's happening with families, And the second reason is because I think had we been able to better detect at the individual level what was going on with families, that would have sounded alarm bells at a lot earlier in the game to address what I think were a number of other problems throughout the system that eventually, as we look at reg reform, we're going to have to address those as well.
0: Uh, Thank you, Janice. Todd? Thanks. Uh, Obviously,
2: the reason... Why we're here is I, I think Mark said it is uh, did consumer protection problems cause the crisis? Because uh, understanding that question, both understands uh, um, what what will work today and what will work in the future to try to head this off. <clears throat> and I think that um, as I look at the data, and most of you should have the, the handout, I do not believe that uh, consumer protection caused the crisis, um, uh, and and that in thinking of that, we're moving in a direction that will be at worst ineffective and more likely. Uh, lay the seeds for the next crisis uh, by misdiagnosing the causes of this crisis. Now, let me clarify first what I'm not saying. I'm not saying there was not fraud in uh, in the mortgage market. Uh, lenders so there were some lenders defrauding borrowers. Uh, there were probably even more borrowers defrauding lenders uh, and there was probably most of all borrowers and defra- uh, and lenders uh, defrauding each other uh, in, uh, uh, but uh, by turning a blind eye to uh, to what was going on i 'm not denying that there was f- uh, perhaps fraud in the uh, securitization markets uh, with respect to uh, um, what was what was going on there all i 'm focusing on is the the big picture question, which is Was the underlying cause of the uh, uh, financial crisis a lack of consumer protection? Final thing I want to say is I also think that there is absolutely room for improvement in the way our uh, um, consumer protection laws work Uh, today. To truth and Lending, and we've got the leading expert in the world on Truth and Lending here, so I won't uh, uh, say much on it for him, but we've created a, a monster that's so layered up by regulators and lawyers uh, that it's defeated the entire reason for why it was originally created. Um, and I'll say a little bit more of that at the end. So I'm not saying we shouldn't fix our consumer protection laws. So let me say first why I think that consumer protection did not cause the crisis. Now, over the run of the the housing boom – Lenders made an an extraordinary number of extraordinarily foolish loans, incredibly foolish loans, but they were foolish loans because of the incentives that they set up for consumers not because of consumers being fooled or being hapless saps uh, taken advantage of uh, by banks. It was because of the incentives that they created. Consumers have now responded with a vengeance uh, to those incentives, and that's what created the uh, uh, the housing crisis. When, consum- when consumers rationally respond to incentives, that is not a consumer protection problem. If consumers rationally respond to incentives like they know what they're doing, that is not a consumer protection problem. The loans that banks made – Presented, I think, quite obviously, very serious safety and soundness problems. When banks are making nothing nothing down mortgages, for instance, that presents a very presents a very serious safety and soundness problem. When a consumer takes a nothing down mortgage, has no uh, no skin in the game, and later walks away because of the ra- the incentives that are set up for him to walk away. That's not a consumer protection problem. Uh, And if I think of a consumer protection problem, we're going to misdiagnose what's going on. So what really happened? I think you can identify three waves to the foreclosure crisis. The first wave was a wave that was caused primarily by adjustable rate mortgages, and this was the the underlying cause of this whole thing was Federal Reserve monetary policy. In the handout, what you see is a chart on the uh, Federal Reserve's monetary policy as it reflected in long-term and short-term mortgage interest rates over the past 30 years or whatever. Uh, What you see, the the interesting story here is, first, that there's a downward trend in interest rates, which is why housing prices could keep going up, right? Uh, Housing remained affordable for most of this time, even as prices were rising, because interest rates were so low. The important thing, though, is if you see the bulge from 2001 to 2004 – where our short-term interest rates were taken down very low. We could talk about why that was. But, the, but basically what happened was um, uh, monetary policy created a big gap between long-term interest rates on 30-year fixed-rate mortgages and short-term interest rates for adjustable-rate mortgages and everything else that, uh, uh, that went along with that. Then on the backside, the Federal Reserve ratcheted up interest rates again to the prevailing level where 30-year fixed-rate mortgages. Note the 30-year fixed-rate mortgage did not really change during that whole period. All it was was a change in underlying interest rates. So, so what that did is, we see is a crea- uh, what we see is that there was a change then consumers flip rationally from fixed rate to adjustable rate mortgages over time. Back before subprime lending was even a gleam in Angelo Mozillo's eyes. If you look back in the '80s and '90s, what you see is that there are periods of times where 50 or 60 or 70 percent of the mortgages that were being originated in the United States in any given year were adjustable rate mortgages. If you turn to the second chart on that page, you see why that is, right? As the gap between a fixed and adjustable rate mortgages, oh, it gets wider or narrower over time, what happens is inevitably, consumers understand what 's going on, and they flip from fixed rate to adjustable rate mortgages. So what we see that's if you see the chart that shows that spread, the spread there is the difference between fixed and adjustable rate mortgages over time, sometimes there's a lag, but invariably. As that spread widens, consumers flip from fixed to adjustable rate mortgages. Why did this not uh, – so what was the implication of this? Well, if you look at the next chart, what we see is our good friend, uh, the uh, subprime uh, uh, mortgages, right? But note that the foreclosure rates on subprime mortgages. What do we see? Subprime arm mortgages uh, foreclosures explode. What about subprime fixed rate mortgages? What you see is subprime fixed rate mortgages did, uh, uh, foreclosures did not rise, The subprime problem was an arm problem, not a subprime problem. How do I know that? If you look at the next chart, what do you see? The exact same pattern for prime mortgages. Prime adjustable rate mortgages foreclosures actually rose faster as a percentage rate than subprime adjustable rate mortgages. The initial onset of the crisis was caused by Federal Reserve monetary policy that provided consumers with an incentive to switch from, fi- flip from fixed to adjustable-rate mortgages, either in origination or in refinance. The Federal Reserve then did something that was completely out of the experience of any people in the history of America with the kind of drunken uh, monetary policy that they put us through from 2001 to 2007, whereas they took interest rates down and interest rates back up, and they whipsawed uh, uh, consumers uh, uh, through that, and it uh, took down not only subprime borrowers, but, uh, but prime adjustable rate borrowers as, all, as well, right? That was the initial onset, was the Federal Reserve Monetary Policy and the incentives it set up for consumers who got whipsawed. What happened next? Well, then we saw as interest rates rose, housing prices fell. The second wave then, and the one that's kind of dominated the whole thing, is what we can think of as the option model, Every month you've got a decision. Do I continue to pay my mortgage, and if I continue to pay my mortgage in the end, I can buy the house, or do I stop paying my mortgage and basically give the house back to the bank? You can think of that as a financial option, right? And there's decades of economic research that shows that that uh, model describes how consumers uh, um, uh, make choices. What would you expect? Well, you would expect people to be more willing to exercise the options. The value of exercising the option goes up or the cost of exercising the option goes down. What makes the value of the option go up? Well, if, if, you, if, your house, if your house is now underwater, right, it becomes a lot less valuable to exercise that option at the end, right? Giving the house back to the bank rather than continuing to make those payments becomes much more valuable. So what we see and what everybody who's looked at this finds is as houses, pri- housing prices fall, consumers decide it's not worth it as much to them to uh, keep paying on the mortgage. They give the house back to the bank, right, uh, um, either in a foreclosure or a walkaway or jingle mail where they put their uh, keys in the uh, envelope and mail back to the bank or whatever, right? This was exacerbated in the most recent crisis because of the way we constructed our federal housing policy, which is we could talk about this more, but basically what we did on a bipartisan basis was It was created new homeowners, right? And the problem here was is that uh, we're in the F.A. Hayek Auditorium, so it's appropriate to talk about the f- the follies of social planning, right? In uh, economic planning, right? Which is what we discovered over many generations uh, 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 of research was that home is correlated with the good things in life, right? Better results for kids, better neighborhoods, better schools, everything, right? All of us who are homeowners un- understand this, right? The problem was that we had assumed that it was uh, um, without demonstrating that it was causal that being a homeowner made you more responsible. Turns out it was actually the other way around. Responsible people wanted to become homeowners. And there were people who were willing to save up to make down payments, uh, to uh, to continue living in their house through thick and thin, right, to invest in their neighborhoods and that sort of thing. What we did by uh, uh, both federal policy uh, as well as the kind of exotic loans that were being created was we created a new class of homeowners, artificially increased the homeownership rate, but we created homeowners who are not buying houses for the traditional reasons. And what we've seen is that those homeowners – uh, have shown a remarkable propensity to walk away from their homes when their houses go underwater. They were buying for a different reason. They had less skin in the game. They were just different people who were not buying for the traditional purposes of homeownership. They were basically living in their investment, right? To call them a homeowner isn't even really accurate, right? They were people living in their investment. And when their investment went south, they decided to give up the home. What else affects this? Well, if the cost of exercising the option goes down, you would expect people to exercise the option more uh, more frequently, right? What do we see? Is we see in states like California and Arizona, which are states that have so-called anti-deficiency laws or non-recourse laws, that if you stop paying your mortgage, the bank is limited to taking your home back. They can't sue you for any amount you owe on your on uh, any more you owe on your loan. Estimates over time vary, but basically, what we find is in the neighborhood of two to the foreclosure rate is two to three times higher in a state that has an anti-deficiency law um, when house prices go down. Right. The other thing that we know, that and, and, what, and, and there was a lot of bad underwriting, right? As I said, there were foolish loans. What were the foolish loans? The bad underwriting, it turns out, was of, of one fundamental type, which was products that caused borrowers not to have equity in their homes. No down payment, interest only, cash out refinance. Uh, uh, piggyback second mortgages. Why? Because if you didn't have equity in your property, you were more likely to go underwater faster and you had a stronger incentive to, uh, to walk away from your home. All the other stuff, it turns out, is noise when you look at the data. It's only if you put into that that component of nothing down, things that cause people not to have uh, a stake in the game, uh, that you see uh, uh, foreclosures. Uh, finally, um, the third wave we're in now, if you look back at the, uh, uh, the earlier charts, the fastest rising group of home uh, of, uh, foreclosures right now are traditional prime fixed rate mortgages. I think that's a combination of two things. Number one, traditional macroeconomic problems like rising unemployment. Number two, it becomes much, people become much more reluctant to stick it out uh, even in that situation when their home is underwater. So I think we're getting the whipsaw effect now the, uh, of the combination of those two things. So first, we have arms caused by Federal Reserve monetary policy. Second, we have people rationally walk away, walk, walking away from their homes when they're underwater and responding to incentives. Third, we have a problem of, uh, of unemployment and macroeconomic conditions. None of those have anything to do with consumer protection. None of those have anything to do with consumer protection. Uh, uh, And by treating it as a consumer protection problem, we're misdiagnosing the problem, and we're laying the seeds for the next crisis. Why do I say that? Well, what we do know is uh, 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 two things, right? which is first, uh, mortgage modification programs so far have been largely ineffective. Why? Because they've proceeded on this idea that consumers are hapless victims, and we just need to fix their payments. That's not right, right. We haven't changed the underlying incentives. What are the underlying incentives? The underlying incentives is that there are too many houses in the suburbs of Florida, uh, Phoenix, and Las Vegas, right? And I don't deny anything that our first speaker said about uh, uh, the problems that have happened in, in the inner cities. I think that's a terrible situation, and we should do something about it. And those people are not responding to, uh, uh, to, to, to incentives. Those people got uh, schnookered. But I think if you look at what's driving the crisis, the crisis, as you see on the last chart here, is – the suburb, too many brand-new houses built in the suburbs of Phoenix and Miami and Las Vegas and the Inland Empire of uh, uh, California, and there are just too many houses for the prices that were being charged there. And supply and demand is not fun sometimes, but uh, basically what we're dealing with there is, uh, is is supply and demand. The second thing is, and the final thing I'll close on, is um, uh, one of the, the, the key thing to understanding CFPA and regulatory reform is the need to keep consumer protection combined with safety and soundness, right? Now, I wonder what I said this was a safety and soundness issue, not a consumer protection issue. If we don't keep those two combined, we could be creating the next problem. Let me give you an example. The initial Obama regulatory reform white paper said that one of the things the CFPA would do would be to ban prepayment penalties in mortgages, subprime mortgages. turns out there's no empirical evidence that the presence of prepayment penalties um, leads to foreclosures. Why? Because the presence of prepayment penalty means you get a lower interest rate, right? But if you ban prepayment penalties which obviously are a risk-based pricing term based on the empirical evidence, if you ban prepayment penalties, you're increasing risk, right? You're increasing the incentives for people to engage in cash-out refinances so that they can strip out uh, uh, equity, Right, so you've got to understand that there is an interface, but and that's just one of many examples to be given between the interface between safety and soundness and consumer protection. So whatever ends up structurally going on here, I think it's important that we do as they seem to be moving now by putting in the Fed at least keep safety and soundness together with uh, consumer protection to to uh, uh, to, to to understand them. Thanks.
0: Thank you, Todd. Ed.
3: Uh, thank you, Mark, and I want to thank the Cato Institute. Uh, I'm Ed Merzwinski, Consumer Program Director of the State Public Interest Research Groups. Uh, on the web at USPIRG.org, and I blog at that site pretty regularly, not just on financial protection but other consumer matters that uh, interest me and that we work on. We're a broad-based consumer advocacy group. And along with uh, the National Council of La Raza, we are working on comprehensive reform to our financial system that is broken and that needs to be fixed. We are both part of Americans for Financial Reform the leading coalition seeking to rein in Wall Street, stop the reckless bankers, uh, and protect consumers, taxpayers, and Main Street uh, from their actions. And we're on the web at ourfinancialsecurity.org, over 200 leading consumer, community, uh, civil rights, labor, senior citizen investor protection, and small business organizations. I was actually up on the Hill last week with some uh, Wall Street uh, lobbyists who are actually on our side, members of a women's coalition on Wall Street uh, for financial reform. Uh, I, I agree with Janice Baudler that the question, did consumer protection cause the crisis, is, a, is an inexact version of the question, and I don't con- pretend that it was the only cause of the crisis. I, um, I agree with Todd that the uh, monetary policy and regulation Uh, of the financial system at the Fed, they missed the housing bubble. How they missed it, many economists are just flabbergasted how they missed it, why they chose. They had perverse incentives, Uh, and uh, they missed this bubble. They let it grow and grow. Uh, The flashpoint for the um, uh, collapse of the bubble, of course, was the use of exotic financial instruments uh, that put tremendous amounts of risk into the system and these collateralized debt obligations and other complicated uh, financial instruments that were put into the securities and investment markets uh, were not adequately regulated. The companies on Wall Street had perverse incentives. Uh, Chris Cox, who ran the SEC under the second George Bush, he had an optional risk regulation program, for the big Wall Street banks. I mean, that's worse than the option arm loans, the optional risk regulation program at the SEC. And so uh, everybody presumed that, uh, the, um, that the very uh, type and the number of complicated securities that were put into the system actually would absorb and attenuate risk, uh, act as fire breaks. Instead, they acted uh, as accelerants. And I think there was a a perverse incentive because of a lack of consumer protection regulation at, at all of the banking agencies that led to an increase in predatory lending that helped increase the size of the flames in the fire that melted down the mortgage system and that left the entire world economy, the entire economic system, not just the mortgage system, uh, in, a, in a conflagration that affected homeowners. Uh, and the perverse incentives existed for appraisers. They existed for mortgage brokers. They existed for the banks that were securitizing the loans. And uh, the, the the reasons for these uh, problems, I think, ultimately are consumer protection questions. And the, uh, there, there is no question in my mind that in 1999 when Congress deregulated, uh, completed the deregulation of the financial system, broke down the Glass-Steagall walls, allowed the commercial and investment banking cultures to fully merge, that the Gordon geckos started running the old staid commercial banks uh, that used to make money a penny at a time but wanted to make money uh, like the Wall Street guys made it. They wanted to make more and more every year, so they looked for more and more riskier products, more and more leverage. Uh, unfortunately, that culture took over. And uh, in the consumer protection marketplace, uh, what were the problems that we had? Uh, we had, first of all, federal regulators who were unable to take advantage or to do what Congress asked them to do. Let me just elaborate on a point that Janice Baudler made. The Federal Reserve, in the Home Ownership and Equity Protection Act of 1994, Congress's attempt to regulate uh, subprime lending, the, that law, HOPA, gave the Federal Reserve explicit authority to write rules to prevent predatory lending in the mortgage marketplace. Guess when they completed the rules? 2008, after the bubble had burst. Uh, meanwhile, the agency, the obscure agency that no one has ever heard of outside of Washington, D.C., uh, the Office of the Controller of the Currency, I, I usually call it the obscure but powerful. Uh, agency, pay no attention to that agency behind the curtain. Uh, The OCC cared more over the last 15 or 20 years under both Democratic and Republican leadership, uh, more about preempting state cops on the beat than it did about enforcing the laws against national banks. Uh, In the last 10 to 15 years, the OCC has only imposed civil monetary penalties in about two occasions once after HUD led the way in a, um, in a fair lending case, and once after the tiny district attorney, I'm sorry, uh, cases against big national banks, uh, and once after HUD led the way in a fair lending case, and once after the district attorney of San Francisco, a tiny agency, embarrassed the OCC in a credit card case where one of the biggest credit card lenders at the time Uh, was claiming in their marketing that they had no annual fees on their cards, giant print on the outside of the envelopes, that no annual fees, et cetera, et cetera. They had a $15 a month fee, and they claimed that wasn't an annual fee. Uh, So tiny district attorney, uh, uh, the the housing lender uh, enforcer, brought the OCC along. Uh, I heard... um, Someone from the uh, Conference of State Bank Supervisors speak the other day, and I believe the statistic that he had was that in the last 10 years, OCC has brought nine enforcement cases. Uh, the, um, the state bank supervisors have brought 8,000 in 2008 alone. Uh, so we have this issue of regulatory capture uh, that has led to a race to the bottom. You have something what we call regulatory arbitrage when all of the consumer laws – um, are enforced by the regulator that primarily regulates the institution that you get your product at. And that, uh, that leads to this race to the bottom. Everyone wants to be under the OCC. Capital One just flipped to an OCC charter. Capital One is, of course, a credit card bank, not a mortgage bank. But I think since we're talking about consumer protection, we have to talk about the whole universe. Uh, the, um, they flipped to uh, a charter charter. Conveniently, at the same time as the West Virginia Attorney General is holding their feet to the fire in a very interesting lawsuit about a number of their practices. The OCC uh, went after only one of their practices. Uh, so when it comes to uh, the question of uh, did we have adequate consumer protection, uh, you have to look at what enforcement was there of the consumer laws. And at the federal level, first you have the Federal Reserve not doing uh, what it was supposed to do, which is write rules for all of the other agencies uh, to then enforce. And then you have the um, the biggest national bank regulator, the OCC, spending more time uh, going to court sitting second chair to banks trying to overturn the authority of state attorneys general to challenge either their practices or after uh, the OCC in 2004 decided, heck, we'll just preempt almost everything, uh, to challenge the practices of their non-bank, state-chartered, state-incorporated operating subsidiaries and mortgage companies that they claimed came under their umbrella of protection. It was more important to the OCC to preserve that imprimatur of federal sovereignty over the system uh, than it was to have adequate consumer protection enforcement. You took those state AGs off the beat. Uh, they did enforce the law against a number of lenders, but they didn't have jurisdiction over the entire marketplace. Uh, the, the Supreme Court, following um, the OCC preemption, did open the window just a crack in a decision uh, about uh, two years ago, originally Spitzer versus OCC and Clearinghouse, and now known as uh, Cuomo versus OCC and Clearinghouse. And uh, immediately following uh, Lisa Madigan, uh, one of the great attorneys general around the country of Illinois, brought a case against wells Fargo and so the AGs are starting to look at national banks and their failure to comply with consumer laws in their mortgage lending uh, and the discriminatory impact and the harsh impact that it has uh, on consumers uh, when when some consumers are, uh, are are sold subprime loans when they qualify for. Uh, a much better loan. So uh, in summary, uh, I, I completely agree that the p- direct cause of the problem uh, in our economic system was the housing bubble. But I disagree uh, that the, um, that the uh, consumer protection had nothing to do with it. And our strong recommendation is, in fact, that we do separate consumer protection from prudential or safety and soundness regulation. That's the system we have now, the system where they are together. That's the system that failed to protect us. And so let's try a new system, as President Obama has proposed, to establish an independent consumer financial protection agency that has jurisdiction over all financial products, whether you buy them from a big bank, a small bank, a non-bank mortgage company, or a non-bank small lender uh, including non-bank small predatory lenders that have a big share of the marketplace, such as payday lenders. And uh, that way uh, we won't have this regulatory arbitrage. Uh, the consumer will know that she is protected no matter where she gets her loan, no matter where she gets her debit card, no matter where she gets her payday loan, who are you gonna call, you're gonna call the CFPA. Now Senator Dodd has recently proposed Um, a narrower definition of the CFPA. Yesterday, he came out with a 1,336-page reform bill, of which about 300 pages is on the new uh, Consumer Financial Protection Bureau, which would be in the Fed but not under the Fed. Uh, It would have its own independent director nominated by the president, confirmed by the U.S. Senate. It would be uh, a separate budget stream that the Fed would be forced to give it, the Fed uh, would have a firewall between uh, its, its people or its governors meddling with the CFPA uh, and the, um, uh, and the CF, uh, CFPB itself. So we're looking forward to moving forward in the U.S. Senate on enacting a separate consumer financial protection agency or bureau. We'd like it to be as independent as possible. We'd like it to have as broad protection as possible. It would still have to coordinate and communicate with the safety and soundness regulators, but we don't want it to be under the safety and soundness regulators. They're the ones who failed to protect us. They're the ones who let predatory lending become uh, ubiquitous in the land. Uh, and, I, again, just to summarize um, our concerns, of the Coalition. Uh, We are not simply supporting a strong consumer agency. We are also supporting corporate governance reforms. Uh, We are supporting, for example, Uh, that there be a say on executive pay by the investors in a corporation. I would think the people in the Cato Institute would support that. Uh, We are also supporting a a number of reforms to the governance of the Fed, and Senator Dodd has included in his bill that the president of the New York Fed, uh, which is one of the regional Fed banks, but in many ways the most powerful because it regulates Wall Street, uh, could um, could no longer be selected by the bankers on his or her board but would be selected by the president. Or uh, so, so we are looking to democratize the Fed, we are looking to protect investors, and we are
4: looking to protect Main Street. Thank you.
0: Thanks, Ed. Tom?
4: It's always tempting when you're the last speaker on a panel of some kind, uh, such as this one, to comment on what has gone before, either things that you agree with or things that you don't agree with, rather than to talk about the given subject matter. I think uh, my preference is, although I would like to make a lot of comments on what has gone before, but my preference is really to stick to the the subject matter, as Mark suggested in his email to me asking me to come over here today and uh, be specific about it. He said that the discussion topic today was the role of consumer lending practices in contributing to the financial crisis and the appropriate response of government to that. But he also, in a following paragraph, suggested strongly that this was to be in the context or the context was to be the uh, proposed Consumer Financial Protection Agency. And so I'm going to address some of my remarks to that, but in the context that uh, Mark suggested in the first place. Now, I know that inside the Beltway, which is, of course, where we are right now, there seems to be a contention, let's call it a contention, that the crisis in financial markets and institutions in the last year and a half or two years was a failure of consumer regulation. Now, I'm not a politician, and I don't live inside the Beltway. I generally try to avoid what I characterize as inside-the-Beltway-speak or inside the beltway ease. Rather, rather than an inside-the-beltway speaker, I'm a, I'll call myself a, a, a researcher, a, an empiricist. And so I'm looking for evidence. I'm not looking for contentions or inside-the-beltway speak. I'm not looking for anecdotes or campaign sloganeering. In all of the rhetoric that we hear inside the beltway, it seems to me that the regulatory failure is not well specified, now, theoretically, I'm retired, and so that gives me time to do what I want, and I, you won't believe this. I actually went down this fall to a hearing in Congress to find out what was going on in the view of people testifying and the members of Congress themselves. What were the causes of the financial I don't, wasn't so sure I was going to find out, but I want to find out what people were saying. Well, they said lots of things, but nobody gave me any specifics about what it was that caused the regulatory crisis. I want to know precisely why we need another agency before we go out and establish one with all the costs and so forth that's involved with that. I would say that inside the Beltway, researchers such as me, and I spent a lot of my research time in my career inside the Beltway, can become very cynical I hate to admit that, but I wonder if what we're really not hearing inside the Beltway so frequently today is just not another manifestation, maybe the best and the clearest manifestation, of what Honorable Rahm Emanuel, in his famous remark, said, that this is just uh, uh, his famous remark that you're well aware of, that we shouldn't allow a crisis to pass, that we have to use crises well. That's not a direct quote, obviously. I only have a few minutes. I want to talk briefly about three points. One is the causes of the crisis and the relationship to consumer protection. Second, I'll say even fewer words about the extent of state and federal regulation that we now have. And three, I'll mention even less, in, in less time, some of the things that can go wrong, it seems to me, if we have a new agency. Now, point number one In a forthcoming book, I actually discuss the causes of the crisis a little bit, and I'll indulge you and myself and Mark a little bit, and I'll quote from my own book. But it's only one sentence, so don't worry. It's a little bit of a long sentence. The book is is much longer. (laughs) I um, uh, I, I, I will maybe have a couple of parenthetical remarks, since it is a long sentence, and go along along the way. But here's what I said about the causes of the crisis. There were many causes, visible best in hindsight. That included one: easy mortgage credit to subprime borrowers. Now, remember when the people that made easy car- mortgage credit available in the marketplace, subprime and prime, these people were heroes. It wasn't too many years ago when creative financing was the American dream, or the way that led to the American dream: low down payments and the create the whole gamut of com- of. Uh, of well, let's call it creative financing that I won't go into in any detail, but certainly it was uh, highly regarded at the time. Second, cause of the crisis: U.S. government housing policies that encourage such borrowing. There's a whole, a whole list of laws and, and procedures and agencies, and they and some way you don't even think about. It, talk about it. the V.A., the the F.H.A., the um, uh, and various laws like the Fair Housing. Uh, the um, uh, Ginny May, the Fannie Mae, and the encouragement of those specific institutions, uh, even the tax code, as you well know, encourages housing and borrowing for housing purposes by making mortgage interest deductible. Third, easy pass monetary policy. I don't think I have to uh, elaborate on that. It's been well uh, discussed here already, but. Fourth, an abrupt slowdown, then, in the growth of housing prices, and it seems to me that this very well, as Todd, I think, said or alluded to, that monetary policy had something to do with that, too, the the, uh, housing bubble in the first place, which was very limited. Remember, the bubble was very limited geographically, which strongly suggests that there was more going on here than housing, than uh, monetary policy. Monetary policy doesn't just affect California, Arizona, Florida, Nevada, and a few other places but we didn't have the housing bubble in a lot of places. Anyway, the cause, the, the slowdown in housing prices certainly had something to do with the monetary policy. Fifth, ins- insufficient risk management by Wall Street packagers and purchasers of debt securities based upon the mortgages. Sixth, failure of debt rating agencies to understand these new securities sufficiently. We've heard some of this before, of course. Seventh, compensation policies of some lenders that encourage poor mortgage under poor mortgage loan underwriting and then I had at the end of the sentence, et cetera, et cetera. I didn't say in the sentence, but there's certain other things that have come up here today too. In this litany, I did not mention consumer speculation in houses, consumer fraud, I didn't mention lender fraud. All of these things certainly went on and contributed to it. I did not mention the failures of the safety and soundness regulators, although Ed, I've, I think I know a little bit more about it than you do, probably at least in terms of I've been inside, maybe a little bit listening some, to some of the things that have gone on. And the Federal Reserve is a little bit more activist, I think, than you than you give them credit for. But all these things, to save, the failures of the safety and soundness regulators, nonetheless were were still failures. And so it seems to me that the contention inside the Beltway that the financial crisis arose somehow from lenders tricking. Some borrowers or credit card users, just seems to me to be essentially misleading. The point is that none of these problems is curable by a consumer regulation area, in its, or consumer regulation in its, its traditional forms, except by eliminating the availability of credit itself. So let's look at some of the proposed reforms around Washington right now, some that are being proposed and discussed by serious people. Let's institute tighter capital requirements for lending institution? How about clamping down on rating agencies? How about tightening monetary policy earlier? How about raising interest rates when needed rather than encouraging housing by keeping them low, which was certainly part of the Federal Reserve's policy? How about reforming Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac? That seems like it's gone into the ether. How about creating... These are things that are being discussed and proposed and discussed. Creating a systemic risk regulator... Breaking up too big to fail institutions, instituting better risk models for banking agencies, reorganizing the banking agencies, employing better stress tests for institutions and the regulators, and even reforming such things as accounting rules. All of these things may have a role, and we could discuss and debate their usefulness, I think, but they're not what we usually mean by consumer financial protection or regulation, and none of them would even be in the domain of the proposed consumer protection agency. So analysis of each and all of these issues in summary of this point is beyond the scope of the discussion today, but it's safe to say that consumer regulations were not the dominant concern of the crisis or an obvious solution. Okay, point two, the extent of regulation. Consumer finance in this country is hardly unregulated. We have lots of regulation already, and some people just, I, I would characterize it as faith that if we can just regulate a little bit more, we'll finally get it right. Federal regulation of consumer credit is now in its fifth decade, and that's if we exclude the regulation during the Korean War and uh, and the uh, World War II, going back to 1942 or 43. State regulation of financial affairs is uh, much older than that. It actually, for the eastern states, goes back to the colonial period. And it it moved westward with uh, settlers as they moved west and became consumer protection, became part of the state constitution in some states. Texas and Oklahoma come to mind. If you want to talk about just modern consumer regulation at the state level... It's hard to date it because there's different ways that you can do, to, do, do so, but one of the original regulations was the Uniform Small Loan Law of 1916. If we date it from that, then the state regulation of consumer finances in its 10th decade. In particular, at the federal level, we have six, just off the top of my head, came up with six major pieces of legislation that concern justice's disclosure area. Those are Truth in Lending Act. Consumer Leasing Act, Real Estate Settlement Procedures Act, the Truth and Savings Act, the Electronic Funds Transfer Act, and the Home Mortgage Disclosure Act. I came up quickly with nine additional laws or specific regulatory areas that regulate practices in the marketplace, and that's apart from the bank examination procedures itself, but these, and these laws also contain disclosures. They are the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, the Fair Credit Reporting Act, the Expedited Funds Availability Act, the Fair Debt Collection Practices Act, the Federal Trade Commission Improvement Acts and its associated regulations, the, Glam- the Graham-Leach-Bliley Privacy or Act of Privacy Regulations, the Securities and Exchange Commission Regulations on Securities, Prospectuses, and so forth, the National Flood Insurance Act, and the Community Reinvestment Act. As a result of these acts... But just considering now, just the disclosures, not anything that has to do with practices, we have federal regulation of credit prices and terms, mortgage lending settlement process, credit denials, credit reporting, consumer leasing, consumer deposits, electronic funds transfers, securities purchases, institutional privacy policies, geographic lending patterns of institutions, and lending in flood areas. I hardly contend as an outside observer and empiricist, as I suggested, that consumer regulation is perfect, or all of it is even useful. But I do have a couple of questions. One, what exactly more consumer regulation do we need to prevent systemic meltdowns, which is the subject matter of today's conference? Second, what evidence is there that any additional regulation will have a favorable systemic impact this time? All of this may sound like I'm a skeptic. Actually, I'm just being an empiricist, and I'm inside the beltway asking questions, and I suppose that makes me a skeptic. I don't want to be called an advocate. What are some of the things that are wrong with the truth in lending regulation? My favorite, as it has been suggested. I'll just mention a couple of things. I wish we could find ways to fix these things, though, rather than to worry about whether or not we need a new agency. One of them is the belief that information in the marketplace impacts only individuals. Information does more than impact individuals, but if you make that the the or you believe that that's its important role, then the goal of trying to have everyone understand everything comes into play, and that's an absolute impossibility. We're never going to have a situation when absolutely everybody understands everything. That regulation is an impossibility. Another problem is that there seems to be, a, on conversely, a lack of understanding that information affects markets as a whole. And so the fact is that the better informed that the marketplace is and the better informed the consumers are and the more informed consumers we have, the better the market will function. Now, it doesn't mean that everybody has to be well-informed, But it does mean that the better the information flows, that the better the marketplace will function, and then this benefits everybody, including those who don't know what's going on. Now, this is hardly a new idea. It sometimes sounds kind of new. It actually is an economics, an idea that goes back for generations, if not centuries, in terms of actual theoretical work that people have done. um, I can uh, suggest articles from... 50 years ago or so, but let's just leave it at saying economists have won multiple Nobel Prizes for work in this area, and it seems like it's totally lost within the Washington Beltway. If it's true, then, that information availability helps markets, and markets then help individuals, including those who are not well-informed, it seems to me that we can have some kind of a simpler goal, then. What we want is not for everybody to be completely informed. We want a situation when people know to go to institutions that are functioning in a competitive marketplace. We don't want to drive away the good institutions because the regulation is so difficult and they're badgered and... and. Uh, uh, have problems with regulators that are so great that the major institutions, the ones that have a vested interest in developing a reputation and of, for good dealing in the marketplace, are driven away from it. Then what you do is you end up with Friendly Bob on the corner. Now Friendly Bob gets his gets his business because he's friendly, not because he's functioning well in the marketplace. What we want is good institutions who are not badgered into leaving the marketplace and who therefore want to be in that marketplace and drive Friendly Bob out rather than vice versa. I could go on. I, I, I would love to talk about the concept of, of full disclosure in the marketplace and some of the difficulties that that has caused for consumers and for for um, institutions. Just let me say that to have full disclosure on exactly every detail of a financial transaction is absolutely impossible because most of a financial Transaction takes place into the future. What in, in the future, whether it's variable rate, fixed rate, whether you are prepay—I mean, all of these things take place in the future—and the idea that somehow by disclosing everything to people that might possibly change some aspect of that future trend of that—that that, um, is, is I, I think uh, uh, questionable at best. And I won't I won't talk any more about the propensity for litigating and so forth that have have driven institutions simply around the bend. Okay, let me let me close by just saying that there's there's some obvious problems with uh, difficulties of uh, or there's some obvious difficulties with a uh, concept of uh, consumer financial. Protection agency. I think probably the worst of them is that since there's no clearly identified need, given all the other regulation and agencies we have, that it's going to be a political agency with a political mission. One of the difficulties with that is, as soon as the political party changes, then it changes as well, and so we have a flip-flopping rather than uh, than a, uh, a consistent or well-developed uh, consumer protection. It's already been mentioned that there's, there's uh, questions of whether that such an institution will, with its political mission, be able to see what in fact are the trade-offs that are necessary in this marketplace between safety and soundness and other sorts of important goals. In other words, it seems that potentially this agency will have no little or no conception of what the systemic issues are, and it will simply be one-sided in its, um, in, in, in its way it looks at problems. Last but not least, I'll mention the possibility of the encouragement, Todd touched on this, the encouragement of cross-subsidies. If what we do is by setting up an agency, and the most recent credit card bill passed by Congress did exactly this, that it lowers the cost, so it attempts to lower the cost for those who have credit difficulties, so those who pay late, who uh, don't make their payments, that the attempt is to lower the cost of credit for those people. At the same time, since you have then to cross-subsidize to keep the industry in business, that the people then with better credit are going to have to pay more in the form of higher interest rates and fees. And so, what do we do? The old—you remember the old story that if we that if we subsidize something, we get more of it, and if we tax something, we get less of it. Well, here's a situation where we're subsidizing the bad credit, we are subsidi subsid—we're taxing the good credit, and it causes the thing to go out of equilibrium. And so, it set up a situation where it's systemically There's a systemic problem here that's going to develop right out of that credit card bill. Does this mean that the credit card companies don't understand this? Of course they understand it, and so they're restricting credit overall. Credit uh, on credit cards has declined 16 straight months. That's absolutely unprecedented. Okay, all of this brings me back to the beginning, and I'd like to say again that I am an empiricist, not a politician. Maybe, Maybe after 40 years in this business, that makes me a skeptic. It's not clear to this skeptic, anyway, that anecdotes and crisis politics offer a good basis for comprehensive policy.
0: Thank, thank you, Tom. Um, I'm going to make a stab at, before we open in questions, to uh, find some commonality among all the commenters, because I, while well, I think there was a wide range of opinions, I actually think there were some grains of things that were shared. And I was certainly in, enthused to hear Ed Talk about a housing bubble. Uh, I'm not sure that I 100 percent know Janice's take on this, but I think that there is some consensus around the table that we did indeed have a housing bubble uh, and that perhaps monetary policy might have played a role in that. Uh, and while some of that might seem fairly obvious, uh, the thing I struggle with is nowhere in the remarks of the administration or anybody in Congress does there seem to be a recognition that we had a housing bubble and maybe what we should be doing is trying to think about things of not having bubbles in the future uh, and maybe reconstructing monetary policy in a way that would avoid some of those bubbles. So uh, I think, you know, maybe there is a uh, right-left libertarian uh, coalition here to say, let's start taking, taking a look at the Fed uh, and trying to get out of that mess. Uh, I also seem to feel that there's some consensus on maybe home ownership is not for everybody all the time. Uh, and w- there's also a consensus about a concern about underwriting, some disagreement about, you know, there's a consensus on we had a lowering of underwriting standards. The disagreement might be over what were the prime drivers behind that lowering of underwriting standards. Uh, and so maybe there can be a broad agreement on what are some things that make sense, such as larger down payments. Um, but, uh, you know, I, I do think that there's a concern, on the direction of that, but there just seems to, uh, does as well seem to be some broad interest in that. With that, I think we have about 20 minutes for questions, so I want to, right here on the front. Right, just, uh, you'll be next, my gentleman, over here.
5: Uh, my name's Steve and no affiliation. Um, I wanted to ask ask you all, there seems to be an assumption that this was a, that there were, the consumers were, were being taken advantage of, and uh, Across the board, as opposed to you know episodically, I want to I want to ask you. Uh, my wife's a real estate agent, and she deals mainly with Latino clients. And I was shocked at how many of them, you know, had these jobs where they made forty thousand a husband and wife, and they were buying a four hundred thousand dollar house. And I'd say, how can they do this? And, and she says, well, they. They have to go to a subprime lender. And I said, well, wait a minute. They have to go to a subprime lender. That means they're going to have to pay higher interest, mm-hmm. and that makes the chances that they're going to default greater, doesn't it? He said, yeah, but they don't care. You know." Uh, and I said, you, you mentioned to them. Well, here's my point. My point is these people who were buying these, these homes, they were getting a great thing. Even if the home is eventually taken from them, they're living in homes way beyond whatever they could afford. If, if the home keeps going up, they, they, get the, they get the equity, and most of them pulled it out as it went up. Um, so they, they get that equity, and then, they, as you said, they put it back to the, uh, to the uh, uh, bank. That doesn't sound like they're getting taken advantage of. It sounds like uh the you know they did, they did a really shrewd thing uh, they can't afford it. They still got to live there. They didn't have a lot of money in that. they they didn't have a lot of uh, skin in the, in there they'd come out with a lot of times with with actually no down payment um so they never had much skin in the game, so to speak. I don't think that they – Maybe I, think
0: maybe maybe I could rephrase sure. the question a little bit in, in terms of it. It sounds like what you're what you're saying to an extent is uh, if you had nothing in it, then what are you necessarily losing when you're leaving it through a foreclosure or otherwise? And I'll say as an aside before I turn this over to Janice, uh, not that I'm advocating doing something along these lines, but I think it's kind of interesting uh, and, and certainly not picking on your wife that the one group of people who have certainly – you know, gone through this and looked pretty well and not got any blame, as our friends at the realtors, where, you know, the, these have been the cheerleaders of the bubble. Uh, you know, often when you're told that houses can only go up, I know uh, Janice mentioned Greenspan and Brunacki and others, and it was also your friendly realtors who said this is a great investment that can never go wrong. I'm not saying we need to change that, but I do think that the discussion of whether it's an always a great investment, but I will let Janice answer the question. Well, Tell people that they might. I'll roll the dice, yes.
1: How, how was it that you rephrased that question again? Oh, uh,
0: <laughs> that, that if you essentially have, you put nothing in, and in many cases, as we know, there were also refinances. if you took something out. So you put nothing in how are you necessarily losing?
1: Sure. Um, so one finer point on, on the realtor issue as well, I, I think it's also worthwhile to point out that um, – Realtors were the only ones with a fiduciary responsibility in that transaction as well, which means to
0: the seller,
6: uh,
1: most to of the, the time. seller, but to the um, to the buyer on occasion as well. Most buyer broker, but right. most of the time, okay, okay. As um, well, at any rate, realtors were playing a key role as well in encouraging folks. And I'm not saying that 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 was happening in this case, but I want to take a step back um, because I think there was a little bit of characterization that. Maybe, or I won't say that people were saying that this is what I was saying, but in general, the, the hapless victims came out a couple of times that these people, that somehow advocates are saying that families were doped into things. And that's not exactly what I'm saying. I, I made two points. I do think that that happened on occasion. I think families were tricked. And I think there was steering and targeting that happens in the market. I also think that we had a system that set it up so that these were the kinds of decisions that were going to happen. Um in I don't I don't know what happened in this case, but in a lot of places uh Latino families are predominantly living in areas where homes are more expensive than they were around the country. Northern Virginia and the DC area is one of those expensive markets. So in the bubble years if you were going to get into a home, then your average First time home buyer may have been looking at trying to get into a $300,000, $400,000 home. That wouldn't have been that uncommon. Um, As far as them not having any skin in the game, yeah, I think that's a problem. But I also think it's a problem that the mortgage broker didn't have any skin in the game, the bank didn't have any skin in the game, and it probably flipped hands several times before anybody had any skin in whether or not that mortgage succeeded or failed. And it was so far removed from the origination that nobody had real incentives to make sure that that was a wise decision. So that brings me to why why would a borrower make that decision? Why would somebody who doesn't make enough money and the fact of the matter is, is that most of them are relying on bad advice. And they trusted the people who were sitting across the table from them that said, you, in fact, can do this. And if you get into trouble, come back to me and I will refi and we'll help, we'll help you get into a prime mortgage. If you don't have credit, the best way to get a good credit score is to pay a mortgage. So what was often sold to the community was, pay this mortgage for two years, come back to me, we'll refi you into a prime mortgage, you'll be golden. Now, NCLR operates the largest, uh, or the, the only housing counseling network focused on Latino communities. If you want to talk about uh, who, who were the heroes out there, you had housing counselors saying, no, not yet, stick with me, work on your credit, let's build your savings, give me six months, and I can put you into a prime mortgage. But they were beat out every time by Friendly Bob on the corner. I'm so glad that that you made that reference, Tom, because that's exactly what was actually happening in a lot of our communities. Friendly Bob on the corner said, why listen to that person? I can get you into a house now, and the value of that house is only going to go up, and you're going to have instant equity. And that was the game that was playing block by block, neighborhood by neighborhood.
0: Before... um I do want to mention as an aside, because it's been touched on a little bit, and Tom talked about you know, the question about the geography uh, and why this was in certain areas and others. Uh, we really don't have the time to go into the day, but I think it is worth pointing out, the supply side of the housing market was an incredibly important part of this, and certainly in my opinion in places like California where you had very serious supply constraints on housing you know, made bubbles a lot more prevalent than in places like Oklahoma where you can build all you want. Uh, I believe Todd wanted to add something. I'll we'll... just
2: say a few words on this, which is uh, um, one of the points here to get at is we've come to think of the housing crisis as a national crisis, and, and it's not, right? The banking crisis is a national crisis because of securitization and that sort of thing. The foreclosure crisis is fundamentally uh, a a series of local crises of about six to ten cities, not even just states, cities around the country. What was going on in there was uh, um, one of the things that's unarguable, it looks like. I've got data in my handouts. Those are markets where speculators came in. Those are markets in which uh, prices – were truly bubbles in the sense that they did not reflect underlying supply and demand dynamics, as far as, uh, as, far as I can tell. Perhaps more tragic, what they did was, in some sense, the, uh, and, 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 of course, the necessary condition for that, again, was Federal Reserve monetary policy, which, you know, made it feasible to go out there and get a very short-term loan uh, at a very low interest rate with a plan of flipping the house, if you're a speculator, right? And when it, We weren't negative real interest rates. Uh, um, and so that fueled uh, – that brought speculation in those markets. Second, I think more tragically, is that it sort of created a nation of speculators, right, to which is it created this feeding frenzy where you felt like a chump uh, if you were not getting in on the the, the greatest uh, uh, wealth accumulation vehicle in human history, right? Uh, so that we – you know, we had 27-year-old single guys buying condos with nothing down, right? Uh, why, do I, why should I pay rent when I can uh, buy a condo and sell it for five years for twice what I paid for it, Right. Well, what the, what what the, the, the growth in housing uh, uh, ownership seems to have been a little bit among minorities, but primarily among the young. Uh, it turns out liquidity constraints and the elimination of the down payment constraints is what, uh, what drove this. The final point that's kind of interesting is if you look at the actual data and you look at subprime lending, FICO scores – did not deteriorate from, say, 2001 to 2007. If anything, they may have gone up a little bit. What deteriorated was all the other underwriting, and in particular the, uh, the down payment uh, uh, requirements, which, again, um, I think is reflecting the kind of people who are coming in and buying houses and why they were buying houses and that, that sort of thing.
0: Uh, gentleman here in the front.
7: Yes, my name is Ron. My name is Per Korowski from the Voice and Noise Foundation. Uh, if we had had absolutely no regulations at all, some other things, bad things, might have happened. But absolutely not this crisis. Uh, that, that, that's an underlying fact of life. Just to look at over one trillion of dollars from very risk adverse European communities managed to lose out their funds in subprime. Land mortgages in the U.S. That happened exclusively, exclusively because they followed triple A ratings. So, so to try to invent any other fundamental reason to this to, is to me uh, very strange. Let me just give you a figure: a three hundred thousand dollar loan, thirty years, eleven percent, given to someone bad risk, that you can sell off. At 6% because you have branded it with AAA, you sell it off at $510,000. And you pocket immediately that mortgage, $210,000 profits $8 in profit. The incentives hmm, t- were tremendously high to give to the bad risk because you could sell it off as a good risk. And that is the fundamental thing. Let me... Uh
0: to start with the observation that uh, I'm sure there are a number of European investors that are quite upset about their losses in the Spanish and Irish housing markets as well. Um, so uh, we might have had a housing bubble, where we certainly weren't the only one. Uh, I, I will say uh, – Clearly, credit rating agencies, which uh, is my intention. Actually, I have an event at some point in the future on the credit rating issue, exclusively. Huge part of this, uh, I I think that essentially starting in the seventies, if not earlier, we in the U.S. set up a de facto duopoly uh, in the credit rating agency business that encourages businesses to basically be lazy and not, uh, you know, raise any real questions. So, I do think that the credit rating model, as we have it, is utterly broken. Of course, I'm my heart is very warm to see in Senator Dodd's bill we're going to get a geo study of that. So. That gives us a great amount of comfort. Uh, but maybe it, <laughs> maybe at some point, uh, you know, this will be an issue that Congress and the SEC will actually want to tackle in a very real way rather than punning it.
1: I think we're equally warmed uh, by that.
0: It, exactly. Uh, <laughs> let me, young lady in the front. Um,
6: Bonnie Hughes from American Capital Planning. Um, I live in a world where a house is not the only measure of wealth because my retirees can't take uh, their house to the grocery store. So my mine is an on-the-ground question about the CFPA. Um, the Employee Re, uh, Benefits Research Institute just came out with, or well, their 2010 retirement confidence survey, which showed that. Uh, almost half of folks over 55 haven't saved more than $50,000. So my question for – and during that time when they would have enjoyed the time value of money as they worked through their jobs and they would have used these products – ostensibly they would have been told uh, how that fit into their overall plan because everybody calls themselves a planner these days. So my question is twofold. When folks go into the CFPA, will they know that uh, who works for the company first or the client or consumer first? And also, will they understand the cost of the product they're buying like we understand the cost of a loaf of bread when we go to the store?
3: Um, well, well, I'll start. I think... I think the question uh, of the CFPA, the CFPA is going to regulate financial deposit and credit products. The SEC will continue to regulate investment products. And, by the way, Americans for Financial Reform is very concerned, speaking of studies, uh, that a provision in the original Dodd bill and in the original President's bill that said that um, under the the Investment Advisors Act, broker-dealers, Uh, would be treated the same as investment advisors and have a fiduciary standard. Uh, uh, Right now, they only have a suitability standard, which essentially means they work for the company, not for the investor. Uh, That's been relegated to a study, and everyone knows what studies are worth in Washington. So that's a problem. But the CFPA will have the issue of financial literacy, uh, civil rights enforcement, uh, and will provide consumers uh, with a lot of information about savings. I think the the, the collapse of the bubble and the collapse of the economy, by the way, um, I would say is one reason fewer people are putting money on credit cards. And the one disclosure that I like in the whole world is the new one that appeared on your credit card bills this month that says that if you carry a credit card balance, it will take you 17 years and cost you three times the amount you already owe the credit card company uh, for that TV you bought. So, so the, the CFPA is going to make a difference, but the SEC still has a big role.
2: I'm you yeah, and I'm, and I'm glad Ed set me up so well uh, for that point. Has everybody received your credit card statement this month, and you saw how thick it is now and how much useless information there is now? How many people in this room thought that was a valuable piece of information uh, when they received their credit card statement? How many years it would take you if you only made the monthly payment and, more importantly, you stopped using that card in the meantime? How many people thought that was valuable? You can
0: raise your hands. It's okay.
2: All right, so 10, 20 percent? Well, that's more than Tom's research finds, which is uh, an upside of about four percent of the population would find that uh, uh, useful. But what does it do? It adds to the clutter of your statement. It adds to the cost of your statement. It distracts you from what actually matters on your statement. And and what I think it exemplifies is that there's two different ways you can think about consumer protection. You can think of it as market reinforcing consumer protection or what I call market replacing consumer protection. Market reinforcing consumer protection says let's try to make – let's make it easier for consumers to find what they actually want, to compare offers, to figure out what they want – uh, and what's best for them. Market replacing uh, consumer protection is the traditional way, which basically says let's tell consumers what products they can buy, what terms are, are allowed, and, and apparently, you know, uh, uh, and, and, and that sort of thing, and sort of guide their substantive choices. That new credit card regulation is. The like almost perfectly describes the worst of all worlds, right? It's dressed up as a disclosure regulation, but what they're obviously trying to do is change your your behavior, right? And so what they've done is managed to simultaneously defeat the purposes of disclosure regulation, which is to help you find the terms you want, while not gaining the purpose, the goals of, uh, of substantive regulation. Fundamentally, the problem with the CFPA-type approach is it's taken us back to that 1970s version of substantive regulation. One of the things we've talked about the structure, but one of the things that's in the substance is still, as I understand it, is not only would they be able to ban uh, uh, fraudulent and uh, uh, misleading loans, they could also ban abusive Loans or abusive terms. Does anybody know what that could possibly mean? I don't. I don't know how anybody making a loan could possibly know what that what that could possibly mean. But what it obviously means is something about we don't like the terms here. No matter how clearly you disclose these terms, you're still uh, you're still in trouble. Right. Uh, that is basically substantive regulation of the 1970s style that, that we saw and, and was abandoned. Now, having said that, we need to make market reinforcing regulation better. We need to stop doing this sort of crazy thing of trying to do backdoor substantive regulation by disclosing things to people that we think they should care about uh, and we tell them they should care about it rather than what they actually and I, and care I,
0: about. And I, I think it's touching a very – I think is a far more important point in a lot of this. It's not so much – who the consumer regulator is or where it's at, while that is important, it's also very important what that consumer regulation looks like. Uh, and I will, Ed made me think something that I want to want to point out here, which is a lot of the discussion among financial reform has been we're gonna, uh, you know, we're gonna fix the ways of Wall Street. Uh, and as Ed mentioned, all of Wall Street consumer protection, investment protection, stays at the SEC. Uh, There was a backing away from applying the 1940 Act to broker-dealers. So uh, I'm not a conspiracy theorist, but it certainly looks like anything in either House or Senate bill that would have bothered Goldman has been dropped. Uh, So it's not surprising that J.P. Morgan and others have actually come out and endorsed the bills. We have uh, one time for one last question. Can I just
3: make one quick comment, Mark? Are you going to have a – uh, speaking of the power of Goldman and the power of Fannie and Freddie, I was at a conference 10 years ago where people were afraid to say their names or wear name tags because Fannie and Freddie were there uh, in Washington. We, we, uh, the, um, but my, my quick comment is, are you going to have one of these events on the Citizens United case that opened up unlimited floodgates of corporate money into uh, campaigns, or have you had that one already? Actually, I
0: believe we did have that event, and, okay. uh, you know, yeah, with more, our Civil Liberties Pro pres- Free Speech peace, uh, Appeal, we've uh, taken a little different position of that. I will say as, a little, say as a little side, when I was working on GS Reform in the Hill, we used to joke that we'd have the Capitol Police go out with those little mirrors underneath your car every time, we were, every afternoon after working on the bell. <laughs> uh, we have time for one last question, uh, and I will make it, gentleman right here. So it was delightful to hear the comments about the fiduciary. I want to go back to Mark's comment. Is this an issue with we could have a right left big hug, so to speak, <laughs> in terms of per, uh uh requiring brokers who give investment advice to be to act as fiduciaries or is that still problematic among my friends on the right side? I'm just curious. I, I would say, from my own perspective, it's certainly something that's not, you know, even been discussed. And to sort of reiterate some of my comments, uh, changes to actual Wall Street practices—that's been the headline. Whereas any of the substance of the bills, it's been utterly lacking, uh, and, and is largely, in my opinion, been a diversion. Uh, we're going to talk about getting tough on Goldman so that we can go after, you know, Ace Check Casher. Uh, you know, to <laughs> me, I'm a little confused about, you know, who we're actually trying to focus on on these bills. Uh, that said, I, w- I would say. I do think there's a substantial difference between uh, fiduciary suitability requirements on things where people give you advice and then sell you something when they have nothing to, no skin in the game to lose, versus you know a lender that portfolios the loan and actually takes a loss. So there is a, a different parallel, and I certainly say that looking at that, you know, is something that uh, maybe does merit a GAO study. Uh, with, with, with that, uh, I want to thank all of our panel, and I want to thank an audience, and I, I believe all of our panels will be hanging around for any further questions, and I want to invite you for lunch up in the Winter Garden.